Hi, and welcome to this installment of our new Books at the Heyman Center panel podcast, bringing you events from the Heyman Center archive. This podcast is sponsored by Columbia's Office of the Divisional Deans and the Faculty of Arts and Sciences, and the Society of Fellows and Heyman Center for the Humanities. I'm Olivia Branska. And I'm Tim Lundy. The presentations you are about to hear come from an event held on April 15th, 2019, honoring the work of Maria Victoria Murillo, a professor of political science and international affairs at Columbia University. Professor Murillo's work focuses on distributive politics, electoral behavior, and institutional weakness in Latin America. Along with her co-author, Ernesto Calvo, Professor Murillo published this book, Non-Policy Politics, Richer Voters, Poorer Voters, and the Diversification of Electoral Strategies in 2019. Conventional approaches to understanding electoral politics look at policy differences as the key factor voters use when deciding which party to vote for. Professors Murillo and Calvo treat Argentina and Chile as case studies to argue that electoral politics is not just about policy. Instead, non-policy resources like perceived competence and economic management can attract voters to one out of several parties. And in fact, not all parties are able to deliver on the policy positions they promise. This analysis suggests that political strategists should consider ways of giving voters what they want the most in order to achieve electoral success, while keeping in mind that voters from different classes, religious backgrounds, and other identities might want different things from their government. First, we'll hear Professor Murillo discuss some of the key arguments of the book. Then we'll hear a response from Rebecca Weitz Shapiro, a professor of political science at Brown University. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot to the Heyman Center, to the Institute for Latin American Studies at Wiesel for organizing this book lunch and to all of you for coming. Um, and both on my behalf and that of Ernesto Calvo, who had to cancel at the very last minute from coming. So I was giving eight minutes to present a very large book. <laughs> so I'm going to try to do what, uh, what I can to tell you a little bit about what the book is about and you should trust the evidence that I'm not going to present. <laughs> um, so the, main, the, the book tries to make three main points. One, that politics is not just about policy, uh, that voters care not just about ideology and policy, but also what we call non-policy preferences. that could be distributive expectations about private good distribution, or competence evaluations about what parties are good for, for either taking care of crime or managing the economy, or even their personal connections to parties through party activists and their organizations. Uh, we test this on two countries, Argentina and Chile, with large surveys of voters and interviews with politicians. And the argument we make is because voters care about both policy and no policy issues, that parties should tailor their electoral portfolio to reach voters with the stuff they care the most about, they have more intense preferences about. However, all parties can provide policies, anybody can provide a policy proposal, but not all parties have non-policy resources. Some parties have better endowment of you know, resources because they are in office for clientelism or better competence evaluation and there's issue ownership. Some parties are perceived as better for national security than others. 
So parties that have more non-policy resources have electoral advantage. They have you know, an easier time when there is an asymmetry of endowments to win elections. So that's the first point we make. The second point we make is that these difference in, in non-policy resources have policy implications. That means uh, that the parties that, have, uh, that do not have non-policy resources, obviously they can only offer policy and they have to stick to their policy preferences, to their policy offers, because that's what ties them to voters. That's what generates electoral loyalties. Now, the parties that have a non-policy advantage, that have more non-policy resources, might be able to move in the policy space to take advantage of this asymmetry if these non-policy resources are evenly distributed across voters in the ideological space. That means, to give you a sense, in the two countries we study, the main reason why people vote for a party is because of their competence evaluations about the economy. Um, However, the competence evaluations of, of uh, Chilean voters are tied to their place in their ideology, in their ideological spectrum. That means that left-wing voters give higher marks to the Socialist Party, and right-wing voters give lower marks to the Socialist Party. So these are correlated. That means that for the Socialist Party, moving from the left towards the center, they might lose the voters that, that vote based on competence evaluations. In contrast, in the case of Argentina, voters across the whole uh, ideological spectrum give higher marks in managing the economy to the Peronist party. So the Peronist party can move in the in, you know, shift its, its policy offers without losing the voters that care a lot about competence to manage the economy in deciding their vote. So that's the second point we make in the book. The third point we make in the book is that non-policy resources generate what we call bias responsiveness. And there's a whole literature on policy responsiveness in political science. What we say is that parties can not just respond to the policy preferences of voters, but also to the non-policy preferences. And some of those are easier to assess to voters. So it's hard for voters to figure out the policies and the effects of policies. But if I promise you a public sector job and I don't give you a public sector job, that's pretty easy to figure out. If I promise you that the economy is going to do well and then the inflation is 50% and you have a recession of 2%, that's very easy to figure out. So um, we say, you know, there's lower information demand, so voters can be judging parties and expecting parties to be responsive to them, not just on policy, but also on these non-policy preferences. Therefore, parties should try to give to voters whatever they want more. And because there are different group of voters, some voters may care more about policy, some voters may care about distributive expectations or competence, and parties should try to, should try, if they're vote maximizing, to buy their electoral portfolio to offer what voters of different groups want. Now, when we define different groups of voters, we talk about basically social class or socioeconomic status. We study voters like middle class voters, and poor voters, because those are the main categories in the cases of Argentina and Chile, given the political cleavages of those polities. But that might be different in other countries. In other countries, maybe religion or ethnicity might be the relevant way of organizing voter categories. We find difference across social class, so uh, although in both countries, ideology is more important for the richer voters, we and, and connection to activists is most important for poor voters in defining the vote, we find that both in terms of distributive expectations and competence evaluations, 
Voters of the middle class in Chile care more and, and poor voters care more in Argentina. And we test in the book what well, we think we are the responses of parties to these expectations of voters by looking at public sector wages. We also look at the distributive uh, strategies of parties and show that uh, activists that you know uh, seem to be influencing the vote in both countries do it in different ways. So the activists influence the vote of poor Chilean voters by uh, persuading them ideologically, whereas they influence the vote of poor Argentine voters by uh, influencing their distributive expectations. So again, what we show is that you know very uh, fast to to try to see how different group of voters react to the to have different preferences and how parties respond to these preferences by shaping their electoral strategies. So, so the main finding we have in terms of policy for both countries, it might have been obvious already, is that Chilean voters with more policy and have more correlation, you know, between not all but some of their policy, non-policy resources with the, the policy preferences of voters and also they're, they're very they're very even Rest, you know, uh, endowments of non-policy resources across the main parties uh, competing. And that results in what we call policy anchoring. The parties in Chile are kind of stuck and divided in the ideological space, although most voters are in the center. They don't move towards the moderate center median voters. Now that has, as a consequence, much more policy stability in Chile. In contrast, in Argentina, policy is resilient, voters Competence evaluation, connection to party activists, are orthogonal to the ideologic, their ideological preferences, and we observe this asymmetry in which the Peronists are, have like larger endowments of non-policy resources, and that allows them to basically trail the median voter, move when the median voter moves, uh, and the other parties that have fewer non-policy resources have to move to the other side of the ideological spectrum because what they can offer is mostly policy. Now the co consequence of this is a lot of policy volatility. So there might be some trade-off between responsiveness and responsibility. So just to, to, to restate what I said, it's, you know, the book, the main point is that politics is not just about policy, that parties consider the basket of preferences that voters have in their mind, that they don't vote just because of ideology, but also because of other things. And because of that, they try, they should try to target, you know, uh, the resources that voters want the most to get their votes, and that will result in what we call bias responsiveness. Parties that have more non-policy resources than others within the same polity will have an electoral advantage. And if these non-policy resources are evenly distributed across voters of different ideology, they will also have more freedom for shifting policy offers. Next, we hear from Rebecca Weitz Shapiro, an associate professor of political science at Brown University. She is a scholar of Latin America who studies the quality of representation, government accountability to citizens, and public opinion in lower and middle income democracies. In these comments, Professor White Shapiro shows how the book reframes existing knowledge about politics in Chile and Argentina, while also revealing new insights through survey evidence and interpretation. At the end, we'll hear a response from Professor Murillo. 
Okay, great. So, th so thank you also, Vicki, for the invitation. Um, I have the good fortune of having Vicki as one of my advisors uh, during my PhD here at Columbia. Um, and so I learned a lot from her in the process, um, not only about Argentine politics, but also about um, rigor and being very demanding of one's own work, and that's definitely on display here. This is really a tour de force, so congratulations to you and Ernesto um, for that. So the book is much broader than these cases, but I think it's worth highlighting how important the book is for scholars of the region in reinterpreting some of the things that we know about Argentina and Chile, and also introducing um, new facts, new descriptive facts to the table. But the broader theoretical framework really helps us understand these cases better, and I'll give a few examples of that before I point to some broader points and questions. So, I mean, the a long-standing sort of puzzle is why have the largest Argentine parties, not only the Paradis Party, but the Radical Party, historically been almost non-ideological centrist, but maybe even better um, said non-ideological, while Chile has had these sort of three pillars that uh, clearly represent the center left and right. And again, repeating what has already been said here, um, showing that these non-policy endowments give the Paradis and, and to some degree to the Radical Party too, the freedom to chase the median voter really sort of makes sense of this like apparent puzzle. Um, and in, on the other hand, seeing that in Chile, voters' understanding of parties uh, Non-policy endowments, particularly their competence, is correlated with their policy preferences, restricts parties from gaining the advantage of moving to the middle because then they lose some of their ideological supporters um, whose assessment of their competence is tied to their ideological position. Makes sense why Chilean parties have been much more ideologically distinct over time. So again, this is sort of this empirical fact that people have known but that we can understand much better with the framework that they provide us. Um, second, the overall picture of how parties gain support in Argentina, especially in recent years, has been overwhelmingly influenced by all the scholarship on clientelism, where the conventional story is that machine parties promise handouts and public employment to poor voters within their networks in exchange for electoral support. Um, so Vicky and Ernesto show that that is basically true, but that that's only part of the story. That's not all that's going on here. And actually, I think a part of what's so interesting here is the extent to which you and Ernesto highlight the similarities um, in, in how voters uh, assess parties, and that voters in both countries are sensitive to ideology, to their perceived competence in managing the economy, distributive expectations, and their proximity to party activists. So these things work in somewhat different ways um, to different degrees in each case, but I actually think part of what's really interesting is, is how similar the, the overall voter approach to decision making is across these two countries. Um, and again, you've also brought sort of new facts to the table, which is while distributive expectations are greatest among the poor in Argentina, they're actually greatest among the middle class in Chile, which um, again is sort of contrary to our conventional understanding of how politics works throughout the region, which has been informed, uh, been informed a lot by the Argentine case, and which Vicky and Ernesto show is a case that manifests when particular conditions hold, and we shouldn't expect those to hold all the time. Um, another challenge, or maybe refinement, to the literature on clientelism is to show that party activists can matter in meaningful ways for vote-getting that is not through distribution, right? So I think so much of the literature on Latin American politics contrasts, uh, draws a contrast between parties that 
have a lot of activists and basically work through distributive politics, so machine parties, and other parties which we presume uh, don't have uh, large numbers of activists and work through other dimensions, primarily promising policy. And so I think it's really interesting here that you show that parties can rely on activists that are ideological rather than primarily territorial in nature, so we should not assume necessarily that activism means distributive politics, that activists can actually, in the Chilean case, um, they convince voters through persuasion rather than promises of distribution. That's actually most powerful for poor voters in the data, so that's really interesting um, and definitely something that, that was unknown before, before the book. Um, so now to some questions. So the book uses a framework which is now pretty clear, I think, um, in that it identifies three non-policy dimensions to politics. Valence, targeted benefits, and party organization. And you treat these dimensions as endowments of parties that are relatively fixed. So I want to focus particularly on the first one, valence. And you acknowledge in the book that valence can have many elements, including competence in managing the economy, which is your main focus, um, but also control of corruption, even the charisma of politicians, bureaucratic capacity, and so on. So one question I have is, what happens when these different dimensions of valence are in conflict? So taking the case of the Peronists in Argentina, they clearly enjoy an advantage in terms of beliefs about competence in managing the economy. But arguably, although you don't have the data, but we could presume that they enjoy a disadvantage in terms of assessment of their honesty and corruption, right? So when these assessments are in conflict, which ends up being more important to voters? Um, you sort of assert, and there's a large literature in the United States that points to the importance of economic performance, but is that always the case? So you briefly discuss, towards the end of the book, the decline in Christina Kirchner's popularity in the election of Macri. And I think you suggest that it's in part the result of the decline in the Peronist Party's perceived competence of managing the economy, um, as a result mostly of exogenous shocks, or some combination of, of policy choices and exogenous shocks. But another possibility, and I'm not sure if it's at odds with your own view, is that it's due to the rise in the salience of corruption as a valence issue, and the Peronist Party's perceived disadvantage on that non-policy endowment dimension. So more broadly, you discuss the rise of new parties in Chile and Argentina, but um, also thinking about the rise of Bolsonaro in Brazil, or um, President Vizcarra's popularity in Peru, I wonder whether changing issue salience is a strategy that new parties in particular might pursue if your you know, depiction of the world is correct. So you say that assessments of competence in economic management are relatively fixed, and it's also probably something that new parties have difficulty establishing a positive reputation in, right? Um, but it might be easier and quicker to establish an anti-corruption reputation. So this might point to parties wanting to try and push voter attention towards other types of surveillance issues like anti-corruption where they can more rapidly establish a positive reputation. I don't think this is necessarily in conflict with your framework, but I'd like to hear your thoughts on it. Um, and I guess then, um, finally, I'd like to hear your thoughts on how the framework can deal with the changing nature, nature of political information. So a basic assumption of the framework is that citizens can access information about politics. And you're careful to say that you're interested in citizen perceptions of competence, which might not be the same as actual competence, but you 
seem to basically assume that citizens' perceptions are drawn from what they observe in the world, like is there an economic crisis or not, but they're basically accurate, right? Um, but I wonder, um, again, thinking about like the changing information environment globally today, um, if you've given any thought to whether parties are able to directly manipulate those perceptions. So again, thinking about Bolsonaro in Brazil, um, his reliance on misinformation campaigns, um, presumably, again, activists or distributive expectations are harder to manipulate, but what happens if and when party, the candidates or parties can directly manipulate voters' perceptions of their performance on these valence dimensions? Um, is that something they can use to get an electoral advantage? And what are the implications of that? Thank you. So, uh, uh, so we think these non-policy endowments are relatively fixed in the short term, that means for the next election. And this comes from the, I mean, even what the, inter the activists do come from the interview, we just ask them what they were doing. Um, and, and so in the sense, it's very hard, for instance, to build an, a, a, a party organization from one day to the other, but it's doable. Uh, it doesn't mean it's gonna happen for the next election, but you know, over time it will change. And in fact, I think the experience of Argentina in that sense is, is good. So when the Peronists had this advantage, the 2015 election was won by a right-wing party by a very, very small margin. And I think both things happened, you know, the corruption and the, and the economic uh, competition, and I have something to say. But then once this party doing, before doing that, it had won the only one district that's very rich in Argentina, the city of Buenos Aires. And after winning the city of Buenos Aires, they really dedicate themselves to steal the party networks from the Peronists and the radicals, using the resources of the city of Buenos Aires. They had jobs, and they use those jobs to basically steal, there's no more Peronists or radicals in the city of Buenos Aires. Everybody who was an activist discovered it was better to be with these guys. Although these were right-wing guys, you know, they didn't care. Um, um, and the party was very flexible. So to get this network of activists, one of the things that this right-wing party did was telling them, you don't need to resign to your original affiliation. You can run in the primaries of the Peronists of the Radical Party and in our primaries. We accept this double affiliation. So, you know, if this is what you need to do it, let's do it. You know, eventually they end up joining, but at the very beginning you see the same people in both parties. So that showed the agency of someone who knew that it was useful to have activists and they needed to build this activist network. So after two terms in the city of Buenos Aires, they kind of ran for the national election. But the first time they didn't even run for the national election. They just stay, they are trying to build non-policy resources, would be the way I see it. Now, um, I agree, uh, Rebecca, um, you know, your question was in our survey, so we obviously agree, because we tested, um, that, that corruption is important, but both in Brazil and in Argentina and through Latin America, corruption, I think, goes behind competence evaluation of managing the economy. The only thing that might be as important as competence evaluation to manage the economy in certain cases is crime, and that's in the Central American cases now. But um, I think, you know, we, we didn't look at this, so we cannot measure it. We look at crime, and it didn't, it didn't have the same effect. So I know that the economy weighed more than crime because we tested. We could have done the test, as you said, for corruption and, and see if, if my hypothesis is right. But the way I see it is in Brazil, there was a huge corruption scandal during the commodities boom, the Benzalao, and nobody cared. I mean, people care. Some people care. But, you know, the, the PT keep winning elections. 
Once they had a corruption scandal when the economy was in a huge recession, you know, they got kicked out. So I think it really, you know, both things work, but I think probably more people care, my sense is, about the economy than they care about corruption. Uh, that's just a hypothesis that needed to be tested. Um, the manipulation of perception. So um, this is what Ernesto is working on now, right? Uh, so the, we have a discussion on this, and, and so the, I, we do agree that, that people, we trust voters, and, and there is a, a question here that's an act of faith, almost. Like, we trust that voters will get the information that's available for them. They're not just paying attention to politics, they're doing other things. So, uh, but even the WhatsApp networks, the WhatsApp that were so important in the Brazilian election, the Facebook and, and Twitter were not that important, were going through networks of people that you knew. So you trust these fake news because they came from someone that you knew. And the Brazilian case is an interesting one because Bolsonaro didn't have those networks. So he basically made an alliance with people who had those networks, you know, the Bible, the, 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 the guns, or the bad, and, and so, and those were the networks that were used for the fake news. But people trust them because they knew the people that, they knew the messenger in a sense. So to what extent, I mean, this is a, a, a game changer. I think it's, you know, we, we really were not thinking of that because that wasn't going on when we did the study. But I mean, the way I would think about was to see how it interacts with networks of activists or other types of networks. Maybe the networks are changing. It's not just networks of activists. Right? And I, I, we don't have a real answer. We have been discussing this, but that's the way I, I would think it. And, and lastly, normatively, I mean, I, I do think, and I, I think it's that we do think that Argentinian politics is more responsive to the median voters, certainly than Chilean voters. When I wrote my prior book on public utilities, I remember looking at surveys of privatization. And so the population in Chile was against private utilities. And the elites were homogeneously in favor of private utilities. So it was not surprising that there was this disconnect. Now, the consequence of it is that there's much more policy stability in Chile than in Argentina, and that also has consequences, so there's a trade-off there. Thanks so much for listening to today's podcast, celebrating Maria Victoria Murillo and Ernesto Calvo's book, Non-Policy Politics. We hope you'll join us next time when we discuss Claudio Lomnitz's book, Nuestra America, Utopia, y persistencia en una familia judía, which translates to Our America, Utopia and Persistence of a Jewish Family. From Columbia University's Society of Fellows and Heyman Center for the Humanities, I'm Tim Lundy. And I'm Olivia Branscombe. Our theme music is the song Moonrise by Poddington Bear from soundofpicture.com. <laughs>